0: Previous guests have loved the experiences, especially because you can just show up and know that everything will be taken care of. Unmound Retreats is offering exciting and luxurious retreats in Morocco and Mexico. Go over to unmoundretreats.com and sign up to get on the email list so you can find out more. Well, hello, and welcome to the Found Down Podcast. I'm your host, Nicole Johnson, and today I'm so excited. I have my first, we have our first physician on the show, Katie Heisard, who's board certified in critical care medicine and pulmonary disease. She's also a physician scientist, and she is on the show today coming to us from Denver, Colorado. Woo, woo. Woo, woo. And, um, before we get into one of the things that I really want to talk about, which is how she spent, she spent some time in New York as a physician during the height of um, COVID down in April, April, right? Was it, I think. Um, but before we get started, I just want to ask you, how are you doing?
1: Uh, you know, I have up days and I have down days. Um, as, as I mentioned to you earlier, actually, I was just coming off ICU shifts here in Denver. Um, and, um, we have COVID patients, but it's actually some of the non-COVID patients that were the most challenging last night. Um, ICU is uh, has its moments. Um, but overall, um, I feel like because of my job, I have, um, oh, it's so interesting being, being a physician during COVID because, I'm, because of my job, I get to go to work and see people and I get to have a social experience and feel like I'm being productive in a way that people who stay at home are not having. Um, and yet, because of COVID being what it is, that also grinds on my soul. Yeah. <laughs> so there's days where I feel really fortunate, and there's days where I feel just so frustrated. So um, but um, and I, I miss the people. I mean, I know you from Seattle. I trained at UW and Harborview and just worked with extraordinary people. Um, I'm grateful that people here have been fantastic. So Denver, Denver has been good.
0: Oh. Um, um I'm so glad that it's been good for you. I'm sorry you had a tough night. It, it, is, it is a little hard, right? Because you get the social interactions of being with people and patients, yet there's a lot of drama.
1: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And I would say, I mean, the ICU, I, I've, I've actually only done, um, I think, five nights here in Denver because I didn't, I didn't work in the ICU during my first year here. Um, and so I'm, I'm getting to know the nurses and I've been so like, one of the things I love the most about working in the ICU in Seattle was the relationships I had with the nurses and the, and the, um, other staff in the ICU and the nurses here have been great. And so it is that you go in and, you, and you're not only just working with people, but it's this really fantastic, emotionally intimate dynamic. Mm-hmm. Um, and I feel so grateful that the, the people here that, you know, I get to go out and have these interactions with people and we support each other and it's that's, that's a really amazing part of being a doctor, even, you know, during a pandemic. During a
0: pandemic. Oh my God. I, but like, I'm going to get to this in a minute, but what did, what was it like when you realized you were going to actually be a physician during the time of a pandemic?
1: That in itself is, you know, it, it's interesting to look back now, you know, thinking back to March probably was when we started really first realizing this was going to happen. And, um, I will admit, I I'm, I'm a you know a scientist as well, and I really didn't think it was gonna be that as big of a deal. Um, but I didn't understand the concept that nobody has immunity, right. and so you know. Um, and this is something we discuss as as, as critical care doctors and scientists um, at my work is is SARS CoV two COVID actually as a virus. If we look at just the way it affects the body, is it actually any different or more severe? than H1N1 and some of the other severe respiratory viruses? Or is it just that we never see everyone susceptible to a virus at the same time? Mm. We never see, like in New York, the entire ICU was COVID patients. We never, even during a bad flu season, have an entire ICU full of flu patients. We never have everyone having ARDS at the same time. Um, And so it felt like everyone was so catastrophically ill um, and more so than we, you know, we, we seem like worse than other respiratory diseases. But then, when you actually look at the data and step back and look at the complications from H1N1 and other severe flus, there is clotting, there is bleeding, there is, you know, all of the things that we sort of attribute to being specific to SARS-CoV-2. And and again, data may show that SARS-CoV-2 is in fact different. But there's a lot of scientists and physicians out there showing data that if you, that the if you look at these other diseases, they have these factors as well. But the big difference here, and what I completely missed at the beginning is we've never had a virus come through to which everybody is susceptible. Um, and that changes the game, that changes it entirely. So early on, I was like, oh, we don't need masks. And and like, I will fully admit I was wrong. Mm-hmm. You know, this This became a very rapid, probably end of March, early April, appreciation of how severe this was gonna be and how dangerous and um, around that time, things were beginning to escalate in Seattle. Um, So for me, I had done all my medical training in New York and Seattle, and by like sheer randomness, I was in Denver when the pandemic started, Um, Mm. and it it was kind of killing me because I saw my colleagues in both of these cities completely overwhelmed, and it just felt wrong. <laughs> and so I, I assumed it was gonna be like that in Denver. So I, I braced myself and um, we had a surge schedule for the ICU. And it actually was interesting, it was patchy in Denver. So my hospital system, which has, at that time, there was like three ICU, three different hospitals with ICUs. We went from one ICU doc to two, but at other hospitals around here, they went to five. So it was, it was patchy. Um, and in hindsight, I can tell you a lot of this has to do with the things we've now discovered about COVID, Um, like the racial... um, Disparities. Disparities, yeah. And so um, Aurora, which is where the university is here, um, that has a lot of more minority populations. And so you have a lot more people who are underserved with chronic health conditions who don't have access to medical care and they end up at the university. And so they got very overwhelmed. Um, I wondered initially why up in Greeley, which is this little tiny college town north of here, they were overwhelmed. They're next to a meatpacking plant. Oh, and so the disparities in which hospitals got hit had to do with what we now understand are the are the disparities and the, you know, the systemic um, inequities in our society. And, you know, that, that this disease disproportionately affects um, racial minorities and, and people of um, certain, you know, socioeconomic classes and, and jobs um, because of the lack of protection, the need to be in public, the lack of access to healthcare So um but we didn't know that. We didn't know how it was going to happen in Denver. And, um, I actually, when we thought we were going to be completely overwhelmed, um, you know, and then the, um, the modeling out of you of university of Washington was showing like when we were going to peak and it was, you know, mm-hmm. we were completely anxious. I was on a phone call with the critical uh, zoom meeting with the critical care group. And we were talking about resource allocation. And I, to this day, I will say, I, I refuse to use the word rationing. Um, to me, that's, that speaks to an injustice and it may be true, but it, it, it also is a word that I think there's always concern that there is going to be bias there, right? If you have a crash something. So resource allocation, um, which, you know, is the dreaded thing that we all worry about with this pandemic. Um, and I, we, we actually have one of my colleagues from the um, National Jewish Health um, worked on the governor's panel here. And we had a, it's, I don't know if you know this, but it's state by state, how resource allocation for healthcare. And um, every state was doing it differently. And actually the ACLU had to sue a couple of states based on their plans because they were so biased and unjust. Um, But Colorado did a good job. Governor Polis got together a really good group of people that included like, you know, um, clerical people, um, you know, Ethicists, critical care doctors, you know, financial people, government types, whatever, and um, included people from National Jewish Health who do research about ICU outcomes and um, emotional trauma of providers in the ICU. Hmm. Um, so one of my colleagues was on that panel and could speak to the group about the, how the decisions were being made, about like if it got to the point where there was limited ventilators and we had to like take people off ventilators to give them to other people literally we were talking about who would write the order. Yeah. Who would make the decision. And of course I'm listening to all of this and I'm so grateful. They're thinking about the doctors and I'm like, what about the RT who actually has to extubate the patient? Like that's the person who's going to carry that. Yeah. (laughs) Um, And thankfully we never, we never, I don't think anywhere in the country ever reached that point as even New York, I don't think reached that Mm. point. Um, And of course that can go to this whole thing about how we started using heated high flow nasal cannula oxygen and (laughs) how medical practice changed. When we had the conversation about resources allocation and it was the same conversation where I realized we weren't going to allow visitors in the hospital, I hung up that zoom call and had a panic attack. (laughs) And I mean, I I think it's, I've never had an emotional response like that in my entire life. And I literally thought to myself, well, I don't have any benzodiazepines in my (laughs) car. But what I do have is bourbon. Oh my God. (laughs) And I literally did two shots of bourbon because I'm like, I have to calm down. (laughs) Um, I was so upset. I wrote my parents an email immediately saying, when I realized there was like no going, you know, there would be no visitors to the hospital. I'm like, you can't get sick. Like you need to like, you know, think about what you're doing and you need to have, we need to have goals of care conversations and, you know, you need to talk to your doctor about whether you can have oxygen at home. And like, I was like, I, I just like lost it. I completely lost it. So I think my highest moment of anxiety about the pandemic was the anticipatory part mm-hmm. as we saw things happening in other cities. Um, and some of the great tragedy that we anticipated did happen in some cities and apparently is beginning to happen again in some cities right now which is is just horrifying the fact that we're talking about wisconsin opening field hospitals this far into the pandemic is insane
0: oh my god
1: that's awful we should not be revisiting these these surges and cases anywhere um we can talk about that um but um but i think overall a lot like as i said as far as i know there's been no allocation of resources anywhere in the country so that at least is is good that like we haven't had to say no you don't get a ventilator right right, right. i shortly after this panic attack um so it's now we're like at april 4th and i remember this very specifically we realized that we had plateaued our ICUs here in in Colorado. And then we went back to the IHME, University of Washington model. And I guess they'd taken new data, which was that we had shut down the state here in Colorado much earlier. And they revised their model. And they said our peak was going to be April (laughs) fourth, So it was consistent with what we were seeing. And it was at that point that I said, "Okay, you guys don't need me here. I want to go help in New York. And so that was, I I just remember that process was interesting because it was like this first, it was a thought, Mm -hmm. okay, maybe I'll do this. And then I broached it to the head of critical care here and said, we had, we had sent two people. Um, and I was like, do you need more people? And he's like, well, think about it. I think we're going to send more people. And then I had to talk to my family Yes. and, and talking to my parents was really interesting. Um, But it was one of those things, as soon as I decided I was doing it, there was no fear. It became almost like a small military operation about what am I going to bring and how are we going to get there and where are we staying? And thankfully, a lot of that was worked out for me in advance because uh, National Jewish Health is affiliated with Mount Sinai in New York. Mm -hmm. Mount Sinai, actually, since I trained in New York, Mount Sinai has now... bought a number, I'm not using the words to my head right now very well, but they uh, acquired mm. a bunch of hospitals in New York. And so there's about eight or nine hospitals that Mount Sinai has in New York. Um, and so as people from National Jewish Health went out there, we went to different hospitals as the need, they had, they had different needs. Um, and so I ended up at Beth Israel Hospital. Um, and um, so most of the the planning ended up being pretty seamless for us because we had um, people arranging our licensing arranging our you know our transportation arranging our billing arranging our our you know, we had to learn new medical records we had to do all that kind of stuff and I would say that it, that was amazing because then I could just get out there and do the job and not have to worry about any of that stuff um, but uh, yeah it was um, once I decided I was going it just became this is what I'm going to do. And I, a lot of people around me were afraid for me and I had no fear at that point. Just so interesting. I remember seeing that you were going
0: and here we had, we were kind of experiencing a little bit of a similar thing. Like we were peaking, but it wasn't bad. You know, Mm -hmm. it wasn't anything like what was happening in New York. And I remember, I remember what being scared for you, wondering how the hell that was going to go. You documented your experience Pretty well I feel like.
1: I think I posted on Facebook daily um, mostly so people would know I was okay.
0: Yeah what what (laughs) before we go into what it was like what
1: did your family say? Oh so my family it's so interesting because my family are kind of a bunch of do-gooders so they're not surprised. (laughs) And and so I called them and I talked to my mom first And I think my mom knew, my mom is so cute. She like, she always knows what I'm gonna do before I know what I'm gonna do. So when I, like when I did um, residency in New York I thought I was a New Yorker for life. I had been there for 13 years and I thought I was gonna stay for fellowship but then I interviewed at University of Washington, Seattle and that I was like, oh, I I have to come here. This is like, you know, this is the perfect place for me to do fellowship, but I need to stay in New York. But I need to go to Seattle for, you know, and I was like completely torn. And I remember talking to my mom on the phone and she told me later, she's like, yeah, I knew you were going to go. <laughs> and I think she knew the same when I moved from Seattle to Denver. Like she just when I talk with her, even if I think I'm confused, she knows what's going to happen.
0: That's so funny.
1: Um, so I, when I told her about New York and I, w- I was trying to convince them I should go. But I think that was part of that conversation. She didn't want me to go. <laughs> Um, but I think she knew that it was a done deal. And then she put my father on the phone and and my dad actually said, he said, you know, I personally am worried for you. And I, you know, I don't want you to go. He's like, but you should go. Like he's, he's the kind of social justice boy scout. Mm -hmm. Um, And and he was like, he wanted me to go because he he felt that he wanted me to help. Um, and so I thought he was able to differentiate his own fear from this, like, pride in me going off into the world to try to help and then and my mom was able i think i we i should actually discuss this with her more but i got the sense and i actually talked to some family friends that she was petrified but she didn't want to to put that on me Mm. for me to carry on my trip um and that she knew she couldn't tell me not to go Mm -hmm. Uh, so um
0: that's pretty emotional I'm just just thinking about like how she (laughs) she's she's you know purposely saved you from those feelings so that you would feel you wouldn't feel the burden
1: and you know it's interesting talking with you about this now in the weeks leading up to that as you know I would talk with them and they're in the San Francisco Bay Area and San Francisco Bay Area you know locked down very early um but my parents are in their 70s and i was worried about them and i wasn't sure initially they were taking the precautions seriously enough um they adorably single-handedly try to keep all the restaurants in berkeley open by getting takeout <laughs> <laughs> and getting takeout for all the neighbors and you know, <laughs> but i would hear i would talk to them about how you know are you bringing purell with you are you you know and they weren't initially oh we wash our hands when we get home and i'm like that's not enough um i think their fear for me made the pandemic more real for them Got it. in some ways. I think it might have uh, made them realize the seriousness. Cause if they were that worried about me, then they had to think about what was going on in their reality too. Mm. Um, I actually, I have to say, even as I made the decision to go, and then once I was there, I, I never really felt at risk maybe I was being naive I mean, granted I've been antibody tested many times and I don't have antibodies. And I, as far as I know, I've been QPCR negative. And, um, but it seems like I was thrown into the stew and the PPE I had was good. How huh.
0: Okay. So let's go to New York. So when you got there, were you, were you overseeing an, an ICU team? What, what was your huh. role?
1: I actually think I had, I was, I feel so fortunate about what happened to me in New York, because I think my experience was very different from a lot of other doctors who went out there. Um, and I, I just want to also say that I met anesthesiologists from New Orleans. I met respiratory therapists from Reno. I met I, it was it was amazing. You know, I'm in this hospital and there's the people from New York who work there, and there were people from everywhere um, who had all opted to come out to New York to help. Mm. Um, it was it was very cool. Um, And actually one of the, just before we get into the, um, what I did there. um, So I I lived in New York and I was working at Beth Israel, which is um, on like 18th and 2nd, um, down kind of in the Gramercy Lower Mm -hmm. um, East Village area. And staying at a hotel near Union Square. um, And one night I'm like, I wanna walk to Union Square and see it empty. I mean, that was the weirdest part of being in New York for me is it was empty. New York City was there was nobody on the street there were no cars I mean there were some but it was basically empty and at the hotel we were staying at the Freeland Hotel everyone kept saying oh it has the best restaurant I'm like yeah but it's closed
0: like <laughs> <laughs> I can't eat there
1: someday I'll come back to New York and I'll eat there um so I go over to Union Square one evening as the sun's setting you know the shifts were seven to seven and so it's probably like 7 30 at night and I see this woman walking. And I noticed that like there was a bike coming that she didn't see. So I'm like, you know, gave her a motion to be careful. And we started chit-chatting and it turns out she's from Colorado and she's a nurse and she had come to help. And she came from a town of like, it was her first time in New York city. And she came from a town of like 3000 people. Oh my God. And I was like, oh honey, this is not New York
0: City. <laughs> <laughs> this is not a, this is not normally the vibe.
1: I know. I was like, you need to come back someday. Like, thank you for coming, but this is, I mean, it was, it was so not New York. To, I mean, L- Union Square was totally empty. That's crazy. Ne- I mean, that was like mind blowing to be walking around Union Square with no people. Um, and so, yeah, it was to meet this woman who would never been to New York city, who's from a small town of all places from Colorado. Um, and I was like, yeah, you need to come back someday and see what the city is really like. Um, but okay. So what was I doing? I, I was fortunate because by the time I got to New York on April 15th, they had initiated stay at home. They were plateauing. And so it was mid-March when things really began to blow up there. Um, In fact, I was supposed to be at a wedding in New York on March 14th, which got canceled on March 11th.
0: (laughs) Oh my God, totally. Everything was just being canceled.
1: So the, the bride who's an infectious disease doctor in New York City, had called me on the Tuesday of that week and said, "Should we cancel our wedding?" And you know, what do you you know you don't want to tell someone yes, but one of our other good friends was taking care of the first COVID patient in New York at Columbia <laughs> in the ICU. And I was like, "Well, I mean, she's not going to probably be able to come." And I and I was like, "Yeah." And and literally that was Tuesday, and by Friday it was so clear that they made the right decision. It was unbelievable how fast. It went from should we cancel things to of course we should cancel things and i think the end of march was probably hellish you know the last week of march first week of april and if i'd been in new york then it would have been a very different experience for me and there was the pictures of the lines outside the emergency rooms and the freezer trucks for the morgues and well that uh, that i experienced Uh, (laughs) um so that what happened early is there was a surge of patients, it kept increasing, and they ha- they didn't know how to expand their ICUs. And so all the hospitals had to somehow figure out how to go from, I think most ICUs expanded by five-fold. Oh my God. So they literally went from one ICU with 16 beds at Beth Israel to like five ICUs with a total of 60 beds. And at Columbia, I heard they went from 60 ICU beds to 260 ICU beds. I mean, it was I mean, how do you do that, right? How do you and that you know, make them negative pressure rooms? Have all the equipment, have all the staff, and that's why they put the call out. Um, operating rooms became ICUs. I don't know if that happened at you, uh-uh. but that happened. In New York. So they, they. I heard people telling me they would have an operating room because it had you know the oxygen and the vents and the, um, and they'd have four patients per operating room, and one doctor would manage. Like a room. one or
0: two. Hours. Oh my God.
1: Um, you know, all vented patients.
0: Um, Can I say something really quick? I think most people don't realize that, or like hospitals run at almost maximum capacity all the time. All the time. Yeah. And so then, what do you do with all the right. other patients that don't have COVID yeah. in the height of a pandemic? I mean we canceled surgeries. I think that's what most I'm sure most facilities do, but you still have, especially in New York, you still have boatloads
1: of patients. Well, so that's really interesting. and I think about the complexities of this. So you, know, when people argue that like COVID's not more fatal. Um, First of all, there's data that, you know, the flu, it's like 0.1% mortality and COVID's 1%, so that's tenfold, you know, like it it, clearly the data shows it is a more fatal disease. Mm -hmm. Uh, But even that aside, the fact that we had to expand our ICUs fivefolds that, and this is a question that we don't know, and we might not want to know, but was, was the quality of care compromised, because things were so stretched? You know, you look at some of these hospitals out in Brooklyn, which were very overwhelmed. And their story, I mean, the New York Times had stories and these are these are anecdotes. But like the patient who they didn't have enough nurses and the patient took their oxygen off to go to the bathroom, was found dead in the bathroom because people don't realize how how hypoxic they are. I believe it. I believe it. And so there's this you know, this, when you have that many patients at once, you can't function the same way that you do it normal. And that, so that's one thing. There is the people who avoided going to the hospital who didn't have their surgeries. I mean, obviously emergent surgeries continued to happen, but elective surgeries, chemotherapy got canceled. People stayed home who probably should have gone to the hospital with their heart failure and their chest pain. Um, Obviously increase in suicides, increase in domestic violence. I will fully embrace that locking down and having to keep people home has terrible ramifications, but also looking at the surge that happened in New York, in New Orleans, that is happening, you know, I think happened in Arizona, is currently happening in Wisconsin. That is what we're trying to avoid. (laughs) And that is catastrophic for many, many reasons Mm -hmm. that when hospitals get overwhelmed. um, You can't function properly at all. Right, and it's not just COVID, it's all the other illnesses as well. You know, I mean, the idea that people had to not get their chemotherapy because literally the hospitals had no ability to do it is heartbreaking. And so when people say, oh, it's my decision to go out without a mask and it's my life. No, because if you spread it to 15 other people, if the r not goes up and the hospitals get overwhelmed, you are affecting everybody <laughs> on, on this huge scale. You know, it's not just like your neighbors. It's like the entire community. Mm-hmm. Um, so by the time I got to New York, they had plateaued. They were taking down the tents that were outside of emergency rooms um, because they were no longer, you know, at overcapacity in emergency rooms. And they had all expanded their ICUs. So I entered a hospital that had, you know, six new ICUs that hadn't existed three weeks before. Wow. Um, and so it was... Clearly, I, I called it controlled chaos as opposed to just straight chaos. Um, also, because one of my colleagues had done the same job a week the week before I came and we had handed off, there was multiple rapid responses from respiratory failure and codes every day. There were no codes and no rapid responses my first day there. I mean, it was, I literally came at the turning point. Wow. And so I missed the really emotionally devastating part. And I have to admit, I'm grateful for that. I have a lot less PTSD. I know a lot of doctors with PTSD. Mm -hmm. Um, So um, yeah, I mean, and that was because they issued the stay at home order and they put out the call for physicians and they figured out how to expand their ICUs. So, um, but again, even at at Beth Israel where I was um, I remember walking down a hall and seeing all these yellow they look like yellow suitcases they're transport ventilators and they had been sent from all over the country and they had, they had not run out of vents. They had extra vents, but that's because they learned how to use heated high flow. Oh, as a ways to just avoid intubation. And you know, for anyone who's worked in the ICU and taken care of ARDS, the dogma until this year was intubate early. And that's what I know they were doing that in Seattle. Um, And I talked to my colleagues and then at the beginning, Mm -hmm. because they were the first. Um, And I believe around the country now that that is not standard of care anymore with COVID, which is you use heated high-flow nasal cannula oxygen and or BIPAP, and then save intubation. Um, And I think that is what saved us from running out of ventilators. Mm -hmm.
0: When you were there, were you like you were in one of the COVID ICUs, right? So all of your patients were.
1: So you asked me what I was doing, and I still haven't. No, it's okay. No, it's all right. (laughs) have so much to say about this. I'm um, I'm
0: fascinated by the way. I could talk to you for a very long time.
1: Um, so my job, actually, the other reason I feel very fortunate besides the fact that the hospitals were you know, essentially functioning and not completely overwhelmed, um, was I was given a very cool job, which is that I wasn't running a COVID ICU. Um, at Beth Israel Hospital, the way that they had run before the pandemic is they had one ICU with an ICU attending and pulmonary fellow and residents. And um, when there was somebody who needed potentially to go to the ICU, they would call an ICU consult. The fellow would go see or a resident would go see the patient. And then the ICU attending would come and and see the patient. Well, when you have an ICU full of COVID patients, you don't have time to go see patients who might need the ICU. And you do need someone to do that triage because there's limited beds. You really need somebody who knows what they're doing to decide, yes, you need the ICU, you can be on the floor, you can be in the step down on heated high flow. Um, And so the week before I came, they realized that that was the job that they needed the visiting doctor to do was be ICU triage. Um, And so literally I spent all day in the emergency room seeing people who were coming in on the floor, seeing patients who had been there with COVID who were getting worse. Um, In that they had a 31 bed step down unit, which was all BiPAP and heated high flow. Um, And so I would determine which level of care patients needed. And then the people who had already been admitted, did they need to escalate Mm -hmm. to the next level? Um, That allowed me to see COVID in every single level. You know, if you're in the ICU and you've intubated your patient and you see the critical COVID, I got to see the full spectrum and how, even in a week, how it progressed in the same individual. Um, And complications, I saw many PEs you know, I saw bleeds. I saw, you know, I, there was all kinds of things that I witnessed. And, you know, and I, and I also saw dozens and dozens of patients as opposed to the 14 in the ICU. Mm-hmm. Right. And so as an experience for me to learn, it was extraordinary because I actually got to see this huge, you know, um, diversity of cases and um, intensity and severity of disease, um, which you know, in terms of what I could bring back to my practice here was was really helpful. Hey,
0: this is Nicole, and I wanted to share that I'm facilitating a mini self-care retreat put on by the King County Nurses Association on October 24th called Be Here Now. It will include resources on resiliency and will practice gratitude mindfulness, and self-compassion. Plus, we'll do restorative yoga put on by the fabulous Des Wood from episode four. Go to my website, UnwoundRetreats.com, where you can find out more. This is a virtual event, so hopefully I'll see you there. What did you... I don't know if you can can tell me, but... Or you probably can, I'm sure. What did you learn about it, about COVID that either surprised you or has left a huge impression on you? Like,
1: so a lot of the stuff I witnessed firsthand I'd read about, Um, I think the thing which impressed me the most was the use of heated high flow nasal cannula oxygen. Um, And that is something we've, you know, instigated here, we were doing all intubations early as well at the beginning, um, and realized how valuable it is to be able to keep for many reasons to keep people off ventilators, (laughs) ventilators are not benign. Um, they're life-saving, but they're not benign necessarily. Um, seeing the quote-unquote happy hypoxia firsthand. Happy I mean, hypoxia. I don't know if I've heard that? heard that. So it's people who are like satting 60% and they're like, I feel fine. Oh,
0: okay. So, okay. I didn't know it was, called. I've, I've heard of that where they don't, they're like,
1: yeah, I'm hypoxia.
0: They're, okay. Right. So they they're, they're colloquially, it's uh, happy
1: hypoxia. huh? is a term that has been used. So I'd, I'd heard about it um, and uh, you know, they read these stories about people showing up in New York and they're like, I feel okay. And then you put the sad probe on and they're like 70%. And you're like, whoa, you know. <laughs> um, I mean, I couldn't get over that. That was, you know, there was, I, I can think of particular patients. There's a man on the floor who we had had on heated high flow and then he was getting worse and he looked tired. So we put him on BiPAP, but then we'd put him back on heated high flow to eat um and we in the process of taking off one and putting in the other he would desat to 60 percent and he was like i feel fine he's like i feel fine that is is so weird
0: it like um is it just that they haven't been persistently hypoxic for
1: there's there's a lot of um i i should understand the physiology better but there's a lot of uh discussion about CO2 and oxygen and brain sensors and like what, what you perceive, um, and, and what the body perceives as, um, stress. Um, and so if your carbon dioxide levels are a certain, you know, like I should know this respiratory physiology better, but, um, there are people who explain this and say that they understand it. <laughs> um, no worries. I mean, the funniest one for me, and it's not funny at all, you know, but as you say, in the intro to this podcast, we laugh and it's not out of disrespect it's because like you'll cry if you don't yeah for the, yes for sure <laughs> um i had multiple patients on bipap sneaking food by mask, <laughs> which is so dangerous right because so you know bipap is pushing positive pressure and so the <laughs> that you might aspirate because you just put food in your mouth and this, this pushing all this air into your lungs. And then I have so to like, virtually
0: intubate them because they, you know, aspirate so
1: like, it. I was like literally sneaking fruit cup under his BiPAP mask. There was another woman who had come into the emergency room and we really tried to get her on heated high flow and she just, you know, it wasn't working and we put her on BiPAP at 12 over six and I come in and I'm like, Are, do you have something in your mouth? <laughs> and she's like, Oh yeah, my mouth was dry, so I have like a hard candy in my mouth, and I'm like, just don't aspirate. I'm not, I, 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 well, I, was, I couldn't bring myself to tell her to take it out. I mean, I was just <laughs> like, okay. And I mean, and the part of the reason is she didn't feel sick. You know, she didn't usually put people on BIPAP because like they can't breathe and they're feeling terrible. And these people like were like, I'm good. One guy we had on BIPAP, and I look in the door, and he's doing the signal for, can I have something to drink? <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, no, you can't have something to drink. You're on BiPAP. Right. Um, That was astonishing. I mean, that was just, I'd heard about it, but to see it and, you know, people's behaviors of doing things like sneaking food and drink because they don't feel like they're short of breath and they don't realize that it's dangerous (laughs) to put something in your mouth on BiPAP.
0: Um, It does speak to though, like how people could just, just drop dead if they had no
1: idea. Right. they they were yeah yeah
0: Um, so
1: wild and then i think the other thing and everyone talks about this and i actually i gave an interview to they they were interviewing some people at work this past week and i actually like and i might cry again because i cried during that interview um people dying alone people dying alone is terrible just
0: just (laughs) god awful i don't katie i don't know i mean it's just devastating for Medical professionals. Everybody. I mean, everybody. Everybody loses.
1: Family, the, the medical professionals, um, and especially the thing that killed me was the patients who were delirious. I mean, it was, I was, there are patients I'm still heartbroken about who I will never forget because I felt we had no options. We were trying to keep them alive, but it felt inhumane like the family they i mean patients delirious but you assume they want to live the family wants us to you know help Do them everything. try we're DNR DNI appropriately and yet they're taking their oxygen off cuz they're delirious so we have to tie them to the bed mm. and in a in a better world there'd be a family at bedside yeah orienting them and helping them to keep their oxygen on but we can't do that and we're understaffed we can't have a sitter so what do we do we put them in restraints yeah i mean (laughs) it's messed up but it's all
0: but but it's what you had to do it's what we had to do you know
1: and we got you know we got experimental we're like you know obviously with the chemical sedation you worry that you're going to put them into respiratory failure but we're like we have no choices. I was giving morphine pushes to people to calm them down, (laughs) you know, like when the Haldol and the Zyprexa didn't work, just so that they wouldn't harm themselves. When
0: uh, I was in the COVID ICU, um, I mean, I've taken care of, you know, a lot of COVID patients now, but I went, you know, went down to the COVID ICU for a day and I was in there, you know, we had our hot zone, so you could just, like, go in through all the rooms and h- help each other, whatever. But here we are, yeah. we look like, you know, astronauts or space aliens. Right. And here, you know, our patients are English as a second language, and yes. they're delirious, and here we we look like, you know, oh, yeah. three or four space aliens trying to tie someone to a bed, because um, if they take, you know, exactly the same thing, because they extubate themselves, and oh, shit, you know, if they pull off their BiPAP, they're going they, die. They're going to die. And it's not easy to go
1: in and out once you're out, right? And I mean, for so at Beth Israel, it's the furthest south hospital in Manhattan right now, I think. And so they got all of Chinatown, and I'd say at least fifty percent of the patients were were non English speaking, Chinese speaking, and often dialects that I had never even heard of, and that we had a hard time finding interpreters. You know, telephonic interpreters who even spoke their language. So there was a lot of iPad family member you know, which, but it's still, if a delirious person is trying to communicate through an iPad, it, it's really challenging. And um, so the story that the, 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 the one patient incident that really will stay with me the longest. Um, so my existence mostly happened on 10 Silver, which was, um, so Beth Israel, I have to say, was a fascinating place to be. They were actually shutting down Beth Israel as a hospital prior to the pandemic. <laughs> And so there was floors and floors of empty units. So it was perfect. They could just suddenly be like new unit, new step down unit, new ICU, new, um, they, they had, un- I mean, what hospital has on un- You said all hospitals are at full capacity. Well, Beth Israel wasn't, they were in the process of like trying to make it mostly into a clinic and shut it down. And I actually think that because of that, and this was April, so I don't know what's happened to be quite honest my understanding is they were converting Beth Israel to the COVID hospital for the Mount Sinai system so that they were gonna just try to have one hospital that would be COVID. For all the reasons for infection control, for expertise, they were making a floor of it into an LTAC because there was no LTACs to take long-term vent patients that had COVID. So they were like, great, we have this hospital that wasn't being used, let's let's use it. and so um it was kind of funny. I would go in these rooms and I would tell people like they they look like a 90s 1990s hospital room and people would be like, "Oh, that color pink." I'm like, "Yes, that color pink." It was exactly like they knew people know exactly what I'm talking about. <laughs> they hadn't updated the rooms in, you know, like 30 years and, you know, they, they looked like a room from a long time ago. Um but they had all these empty floors and wards, right? I mean, it was it was it was great for them and so by the time I got there everything had been established and set up and they turned this one floor 10 silver into the step down where people could be on high flow nasal cannula and BiPAP and they had these cool things called Mossimos which were basically um ICU monitors that the patient would wear like a chip on their wrist and the monitor was outside in the hall and so it would show heart rate oxygen saturation and um probably respiratory rate. And it had the waveforms and the numbers, but it also had for each patient, a little heart and lungs picture. Hmm. And if you were in the healthy range, they were both green. If something was, um, you know, bad, it would be red. And if it was intermediate, it would be yellow. So you could just walk down the hall and see if the heart and lungs on each patient was green and not have, cause there was, you know, everyone's behind a closed door. Yeah. It's,
0: wow. Uh, that's so cool.
1: Yeah. And so I was, My job was to, you know, a lot of assessing the patients to go to the ICU was like, do they, can they go to 10 silver or, and then do the 10 silver patients, do they need to graduate to the ICU? And I spent a lot of time there. And that unit interestingly was run by general medicine doctors, not pulmonologists, not critical care doctors, because they didn't have enough. (laughs) And so what my colleague who'd done the ICU triage before me had said is every day, you should round with the teams you should, you know, check in with them about all their patients. And that was actually something where like, you know, people always ask, like, do you think you helped? And a lot of people who went to New York are like, I have no idea if I actually helped, you know, it was chaos. I feel like I helped because I would educate these really smart internal medicine doctors about how BIPAP works and pulmonary physiology, which is something which like if you don't do that every day, like most people don't know it. And I forget that, you know, that's it's inherent to what I do every day. Um, and like, what are the BiPAP settings and what's the difference between CPAP and BiPAP and, you know, what are, you know, and all these different things. And, and so we, I would round my colleague and I would, you know, round with both teams on that floor and discuss even the people we weren't consulted on specifically, just talk about how should we manage? Cause everyone was there for a respiratory problem. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. How should we manage a Respiratory problem. What should we do? Um, and so I felt like I, I helped educate people I was there with, um, the, the, the teams I was working with and that I felt really grateful for that opportunity. Um, but that became kind of my, my home, you know, I was on that floor all the time. And a lot of the patients I was specifically consulting on were were there. They were two to a room. And again, most of them were Chinese. I would say we had 50% Chinese, probably 30% Hispanic, Latino. And then, you know, some smattering of the last 20% of everything else. Um, And I would often be seeing one patient in a room and and not be consulting on the other patient, but see them every day. And so I, there was my patient in this one room was by the window and the other patient was by the door and as I said, I would walk down the hall. And even if it wasn't a patient I was consulting on, if I saw on the monitor that something was not going okay, I'd often go in the room and try to be like, did you take your oxygen off? Or did you take your BiPAP mask off? Or, you know, what's going on? Cause they just didn't have enough people to do that. Right. <laughs> um, and of course, going in the room to do that means, you know, you're, you're wearing an N95 at baseline, but that means putting on your face shield and gowning up and gloving up and putting on the head covering and the, you know it's not trivial to go into a room. Um, and so one day I walk down the hall and I see um I can't remember if oxygen was low, heart rate was low, and it was the the neighbor to the patient I'd been consulting on. And I go in and it becomes very clear she'd been on BIPAP, it was they they escalated as far as they could go with her respiratory support that she was dying. It was, you know, just looking at her vital signs mm-hmm. and the way she was breathing, and she was Chinese speaking. And a nurse had come in with me. I actually don't know. I have, to this day, I don't know if it was a nurse, respiratory therapist, nurse's aide. I don't know who this woman was, but I will be forever grateful to her. It becomes clear that this woman is dying. And I freaked out. And my first thought was what needs to happen. And so I was like, need to tell the team. Need They need to call the family. We need to get morphine on board. You know, like I'm thinking about like all the doctor stuff, right? Mm-hmm. So I start to ungown and and. As I'm gowning, this woman walks up to the patient and takes her hand and the patient doesn't speak English but it doesn't matter. And the woman says, I'm here with you. You are not alone. And I'm still gonna cry talking about it. Um, I will remember that forever because I actually, and this is all on me, I felt shame. I was like, I should have done that. Um, And I think in my fear of, oh, my goodness, this woman is dying in front of me. I went into medical mode. I went into, you know, hardcore clinical intellectual mode about, you know, and it's still compassionate. I wanted her to have morphine. I wanted her family to be made aware. Yes. We get it. Yeah. I'm forever struck by the humanity of that woman, the the nurse, whoever she was, who was. And she'd obviously been through many more of these than I had. (laughs) This was my first she just very calmly took her hand and held it and and you know the language barrier at that point is irrelevant yeah. she just said i am here with you you are not alone and i think for me that will probably be covid the covid pandemic in my mind that patient and all the things that are wrong about what happened oh. i'm so sorry And i vowed at that moment that in the future that i would you know i would take a moment to extend that love and compassion to the patient
0: i think i i mean it's so easy to go to that place though katie where you're like where is the morphine? You know, let's, yeah. let's the fa- you know because you're thinking like, oh my God, like we like, want to make them comfortable.
1: You want the family to know, like. Right. Which is- I mean, but that's the thing about, this is what COVID has robbed from us, is that there would never be a time where there wouldn't have been a family. At the uh, I mean, we, and actually I, you and I, I mean, you have seen me cry on many occasions. <laughs> you were there the day we had we coded that gentleman on 6SA oh yeah um who had no family and part of the reason I think I was so devastated by that was that I felt responsible because he came in the hospital and I was admitting him and I was his person Mm -hmm. um that usually doesn't happen during non-COVID yeah but that's happening constantly during COVID and You know, in normal times, if it was walked in the room and, you know, patient was agnally breathing, there would be a family member at the bedside in all likelihood, Mm -hmm. or there'd be enough nursing staff or whatever that, but um, it just seemed like everything was limited. You know, there was, I had to go take care of stuff because no one else was going to, because everyone was stretched so thin and, and that's what's devastating. This is what's so devastating about COVID. Definitely.
0: Like, I mean, we're, I, I don't know what is going to happen. I mean, hopefully, uh, a lot of medical professionals out there are getting, seeing therapists, or I don't know. Um, I mean, there are some serious scars um, for friends that I've known who had to hold up Zoom, you yeah. know, Zoom, a, a iPad for Zoom calls to say goodbye. Like, I cannot even begin to imagine. There was this guy who did have COVID and um, he did pass away. Uh, but I remember walking by his room, and it's everything you know—it's an isolation, of course—and it's like, um, and just seeing this iPad on his on his chest, with no family in the room, but his family was just watching him, like on the ventilator, just for like hours.
1: Yeah, like it's just—and even as I tell this story. Again, I will, I was in New York at a time where things were better. And I know that there are so many other people who this incident I'm talking about happened over and over
0: over
1: for them. Um, And I recognize that. I talk about PTSD. I have gratitude that I am not, I mean, I'm grateful for the people who were there. And if I had had been there, it would have been me. I just by chance came later to New York. and by whatever twist of fate, since I was there later, I was not subjected to as much of this mm-hmm. emotional stage trauma. And, yeah. And um, I have to say that, like, <laughs> I'm glad, <laughs> you know, and and granted, I, I offer myself if I had been the person in the middle of that, that would have been what it was, you know, um, but I recognize that many other people were exposed to many, many more Tragic. So, you you know, you mentioned the refrigerated trucks. I was standing in the office where I um, had been assigned to, you know, an office in the pulmonary suite where we could like take off our masks and eat sandwiches and yeah. things like that. And I looked out the window and it took me a minute to realize what I was looking at, which was a refrigerated Mark truck. And I realized every single hospital in New York had them.
0: That is just I mean, you you know, we saw it on the news. I just can't imagine what to see. It would be like firsthand.
1: And that was a creepy moment. Like, I again, I'd seen them on the news and to stand there and be looking across whatever it was, 16th Street and be like, oh, that's what that is. This is no
0: effing flu <laughs> to, to have more refrigerated more trucks, you know.
1: And that's where like, you know, and we've talked about this, like. The frustration of people denying what this is, whether it's random people on Facebook or the White House, um, anyone who's worked in healthcare can say how this is different than anything we've ever seen before, um, and you know to know how devastating it is for communities. And to not see the country as a whole again, whether it's at a city level, state level, national level, if it's random neighbors versus politicians, not trying to contain this. It's just like there's it just doesn't compute. There's so much dissonance. It's and to know that. You know, I have this small episode I just relayed that was heartbreaking and devastating for me, the patient, the patient's family. And that's happening tens, hundreds of thousands of times. And we're not trying to prevent that. And people are saying it's not happening. I was talking to a nurse today, uh, this morning, but right before I left the ICU, about the people who are like, oh, nobody knows anyone who's died of COVID. And I'm like, what? You see this on Facebook all the time. I should, not I mean, you've, you've yeah, seen, you oh, know, oh, yeah. I should not, I should not be arguing with trolls. But the number of random people who I don't know who have said to me, "I don't know anyone who's died of COVID. Nobody I know knows anyone who's died of COVID. This isn't killing people," and I'm just like, oh.
0: Why is know. it that we have to feel like, or we uh, people? Uh, for some dumb reason, have to feel like they need to experience this thing firsthand to believe that it's real. Like, yeah. wasn't it enough what happened in New York? Like, then it happened in, a, in Phoenix, and then Florida, and
1: right you know, now it's happening in the Midwest. Yeah,
0: Sturgis. I can't believe I just couldn't
1: believe that yeah. went down. But well, I mean, I think there's. This is me completely just talking out of my ass. <laughs> I am not a sociologist or you know whatever. yeah um, but I think there's there's two things. There is literally dissonance in terms of there's misinformation coming from places of power. And you know, the argument can be made there. I mean, I think I saw a, a report recently, someone did a report and they found that like the biggest source of misinformation in this country is the White House. <gasps> So you actually, they they took something like 38 million news articles and like looked for where COVID misinformation was and like the largest sources like coming out of, you know, political establishments. And so, you know, that is one thing. And (laughs) it's kind of hard to blame your fellow American when like someone they supposedly trust is telling them something different. That's true. Um, But I think the other part of this is that, you know, I don't want to get too political on this, but the way our country has evolved over the last 4 years and again we could point to individuals who are responsible for mm-hmm. this is for Americans to be really self-sufficient or self you know focused and if it's not happening to you is it a thing because you know life's all about you <laughs> i yeah right so it's, it's this culture that we're in right now, which is so tragic that it it feeds into this narrative of like, well, if it's not happening to me, it's not happening. Yeah. Or I don't need to care about it. The number of people who have argued about like the mortality rate is high in older people. And I'm like, because older people don't matter? They don't contribute to society? Nobody loves them? Like, what are you saying? Yeah. <laughs> like like as if that validates why they're not wearing a mask because really it's only older people who die and i'm like but wait what <laughs>
0: yeah yeah that argument yeah doesn't stand for me yeah what do you um i know we now at least we have some treatments right for covid so but we still don't have a cure or sort of
1: treatments you say yeah um, so I, mean, I had to go over the literature recently. I mean, okay, let's not even talk about Regeneron because that doesn't exist. Right. I mean, it does, but it doesn't. Um, the things we have actual data for are that are that are helpful. So, okay, I do think it's a big change and helpful that we are now using heated high-flow nasal cannula and less ventilators. And obviously, we have ventilators as we need them and ECMO as we need it. Um, but I, it, that has helped allow us to care for the vast number of people. Um, You know, so that I feel like is a shift that happened that was really good. Um, The data right now, the only data we actually have that definitively shows benefit is remdesivir and steroids. And there's, you know, more clinical trials coming for other things. There's all of these cool, you know, immunomodulatory things people want to try, you know, Although I have to say, it's interesting. There's like one trial which is going to give GMCSF and another one's going to give anti GMCSF. <laughs> like, we don't even know. One wants to get rid of this cytokine and one wants to, you know, Start, rev, rev it up. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. And, but I mean, I think that also speaks to the fact that there's phases of this illness. So this gets down to the, you know, this is where I nerd out, right? This is like what I study in the laboratory. I study cellular and molecular mechanisms of airway inflammation. And when we think about COVID, you know, the people who end up hospitalized tend to be in the later phases, like in the second or third phase, depending on how you view it. There is an initial, the virus infects you and your immune system needs to kick in. And so getting rid of the virus and allowing your immune system to do its job is good. But then later we think that people get really sick because their immune system goes haywire. So you can imagine that early on, maybe you want to rev the immune system and later you want to dampen the immune system. So when we think about these kind of like well those two therapies are contradictory it's like well what when are you giving them right like it might make a huge difference and i think that's something um people are doing a lot of trials and when you look at the data like it might be like oh it doesn't have any benefit well when did you give it did you give it at the right time you know like maybe we should be giving it earlier but we should be giving it later maybe you know maybe there's a subpopulation of people who would benefit from this you know like and it's hard to do that during a pandemic to do all of those studies like that. Although the recovery study, which is going on in the UK, is trying to do that. It is, you know, this enormous randomized control trial where they're testing like, you know, 30 different medications. They came up with positive data on dexamethasone. They came up with negative data on hydroxychloroquine. They're testing a bunch of these anti-inflammatories. So, you know, they're trying to do that. They're trying to do the very large randomized control trial. Um, But so dexamethasone seems to provide a mortality benefit. And and the sicker you are, the the better it seems to be. So ventilated patients have more benefit than somebody who's just on nasal cannula oxygen. Data there actually suggests that if you're not, this is what this came up when Trump got sick, is if you're not sick enough to be on oxygen, it may actually cause harm. Mm. I think most, most doctors will not give steroids to somebody who's not sick enough to be on oxygen. Um, with the, the thought there is there's some studies from, I think it was SARS-CoV-1 that you have enhanced viral replication if steroids are present. Oh yeah. Nope.
0: Don't don't want that.
1: This guy who's promoting inhaled budesonide. I'm like, no, you, someone gets COVID and you give them inhaled budesonide and like, maybe you're going to enhance their viral replication. Like until you show me a randomized control trial that this is good. I'm just, no, Yeah. (laughs) the data suggests the opposite. Um, but that's, and even in the big studies on COVID with dexamethasone, there's not definitive data that it's harmful, but most doctors are like, eh, I'm not sure I'd give it to somebody who doesn't need oxygen. I have colleagues who don't even want to give it to people on the ventilator because they say, you know, I've seen super infections, I've seen pseudomonas infections, I've seen staph infections, you know, and you are weakening the immune system by giving steroids. Um, we've been checking, trying steroids for decades in ARDS and, you know, had really mixed data. So. I think most of us are using steroids, but um, you know, it's 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 definitely not a miracle, right? It's we think it's helping, but even if it's helping, it's not like curing people and making everyone get better. People still die of COVID who have gotten dexamethasone. Yeah. Right? And then remdesivir, I think of as the Tamiflu of COVID. That, yeah. And the data shows that if you take it, um, and again, that's you can't be too sick. It's generally the people who are like requiring oxygen, but not on the ventilator. That you get better. There wasn't, there was a trend towards a mortality benefit, but the actual endpoint in that trial was that you get better faster. So that's kind of like what Tamiflu does when you have the flu. There's no mortality benefit, but you get better faster. (laughs) So I'm like, eh, you know. (laughs) So yeah, I mean, we're still really lacking for therapies. Yes, which is why
0: you don't want to get it (laughs) still. Exactly. Yeah. Matt, yeah. Uh, I did. I don't know. I did see some article somewhere. Of course, I don't remember where it came from, but um, it, it felt like, or it said something like, because we're wearing more, more masks, like the, we're getting like a small inoculum
1: of. So we could be building immunity. Yeah. The, so the immunity piece is fascinating to me and has been from the beginning um, that You know, there's the reports that we have, because people are still saying, could you get reinfected? The reports that we have now are about antibody titers in people, and um, they do seem to decrease over time and, you know, relatively rapidly, like over months, so that if you got this in March, that by now you might not have antibodies. Um, But there's also studies coming out now, you know, immunity is not all antibodies. Immunity is also T cells. And so one of the reasons they think that children might not get severe disease is that coronaviruses, um, other coronaviruses cause the common cold. And um, if you've gotten a lot of coronaviruses recently, you might have T cells. And so they actually showed in a cell cell big journal that there's a fair number of people who have T cells who have never had COVID who are cross-reactive to COVID. Um, now, whether that means that makes them immune or makes them have less disease, we don't know. Mm -hmm. Um, and so the same idea I've seen with, if you're wearing a mask and so you like, obviously no one's, we're not walking around with N95s on the street. We're walking around with surgical masks and cloth masks. So you're not hundred percent protected. I mean, N95 doesn't hundred percent protect you either, (laughs) but it's called 95 because it's 95%. It's not (laughs) hundred. Um, but, uh, the idea there is if you're getting a little bit of virus and not enough to actually make you get sick, you could be priming your immune system, you know, and so that as time goes by, there may be more. Now immunity doesn't mean you're not gonna get sick, but it might mean you won't get as sick, right? Right. I mean, Well, that's the true, like with the flu vaccine, like you can still get the flu, but you're not gonna get as sick if you've been vaccinated.
0: Yeah. Well, Katie, I think we've been talking for almost an hour. I can't believe it. i sorry no listen i love talking to you this is like i i could just listen to you talk about science and um medicine and 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 i i like nerding out in my brain i'm i'm like all the you know dopamine's like boo boo you know because i'm enjoying it (laughs) but um do you have any last like closing thoughts about anything um uh and if you don't no worries but um
1: I mean, in terms of who your audience is, and obviously who knows who's listening to the podcast. I hope everybody is. I've been telling everyone to listen to it. Um, But, you know, it's directed at healthcare workers and people who work in the ICU. You know, keep on keeping on. And the fact that we are a team, the fact that we, if you work in an ICU, I mean, I think one of the things, you know, that really bonds ICU healthcare workers together as we become a family. You know, there has to be so much trust. Um, and um, that's what's gonna get us through this. And you know, we are a family, we get to actually see each other at work and we get to support each other through this difficult time. And I think that that's such a blessing that we are so prepared for that aspect of this. So and I'm grateful for that. And hopefully everybody has an ICU family that they can rely on. Mm.
0: I feel so incredibly lucky where I am and, you know, work with so many people that you've worked with over the years. Oh, and, yeah. <laughs> um, you know, and I and I think as you have, obviously you've gone on different places, but, you know, there, there is something very, very special um, that happens when you work together in these sort of high-intensity, high-stakes... Um, actual and, life and uh, death situations. Actual life and death where... You don't want anybody to die, <laughs> and sometimes they do, and um, it bonds you for life. If I feel like so. Yep, I am so honored that you are on the show. You are such a blessing. I hope to see you in person some sometime, and then I don't when know when we can travel again. When we can travel again? Oh my god! Um, I yeah. Wish you the best of luck in Denver, and um, I'm just so grateful. And I'm sure everybody out there learned a lot and just enjoyed your episode. So thank you so much, Katie.
1: Thank you for inviting me. It's my honor to be on the podcast. Such a
0: joy. Okay. All right. Well, we'll see you and have a wonderful rest of your day. Okay. Bye, Katie. Bye.